Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talked to Lene Erickson. She's the Senior Vice President for Third Way Social Policy and Politics Program. She previously served as a member of President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, as well as an attorney for the Center for the Victims of Torture. At Third Way, Lene is a national leader in researching and developing policy on some of the most impactful issues facing America today. She led Third Way's commitment campaign, which shifted public discourse on marriage equality, Lene also ran an important project documenting how social media distorts our politics and how Democrats can overcome the economic trust gap. Finally, Lene is one of the few D.C. policy professionals who thinks about the importance and role of small cities where a plurality of Americans live. Enjoy. Lene Erickson, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks so much for having me. Let me just say, I'm a longtime fan. I've been following your work for years now. I'm excited to talk with you and really dive in. And the place I'd like to start with a little bit is people are talking a lot about red and blue America. George Packer has four Americas. How do you think about where America is politically right now? You know, I think that when you map um, voters' beliefs and how they describe themselves, there's really a, a spectrum of how people think about themselves politically, right? There is, you know, there's a chunk, well, let's say maybe 25, 30% of the country that is hard right, anti-vaxxer, Trump forever folks. <laughs> there is a slightly smaller group on the left that, you know, wants to go big with Bernie and AOC. And then most of us are in the middle of those two polls. And I always use polling to try to understand the complexities of American politics instead of giving an either or answer. And one of the things that always fascinates me is how many people have overlapping views. People out in the country, not not people in Washington, D.C. necessarily. They're not always represented there. So we like to ask the question, you know, um, should abortion be a decision between a woman and her family and her doctor? And usually about 70% of people say yes. And then we ask, is abortion the taking of a human life? And about 65% of people say yes. That means that there's a whole bunch of people that said yes to both of those questions. And I think that's true on lots of different issues that um, there's just a lot more gray than maybe we allow normally in the political conversation. Being a local elected official, I've lived with, you know, that sort of a little bit of contradictory. Everyone wants affordable housing. Not everybody wants it in their neighborhood. Everybody wants more services, but they may not want to pay more for more taxes. And you sort of live with that complexity. I guess how well is is our political system responding to that complexity in mm-hmm. a world where messaging seems to be getting 
shorter and less nuanced over time. You know, I think Joe Biden is doing a good job of responding to that complexity, and that's helped certainly the Democratic coalition. You know, I don't think anyone in the Republican coalition in Washington at this point is really engaged in complexity. They seem to want to simplify more and more and more. But, you know, Joe Biden is very good at acknowledging where there's those tensions and saying, you know, we want more services, but we also want to pay for them. But we also don't want to raise taxes under people $400,000 a year. So I think he's managed to kind of navigate that. But the problem is the folks who drive the debate so often at the national level, whether in the media or, you know, in the Capitol, are the folks on Twitter and social media. And they are just not representative of the rest of the country. You know, we did a lot of public opinion research around Democratic primary voters during 2019 and 2020. And the thing that shocked me the most was even of Democratic likely primary voters, right, the folks we would think of as on base, only 12% of them tweet once a day. That's crazy. That's 10%, you know, one in 10 of Democrats that are engaged in the primary are engaged on Twitter. And those people had wildly different views than the Democratic primary electorate as a whole. They were hugely more supportive of things like Medicare for all. They were much more supportive of Bernie. They were younger. They were more male. They were whiter. Um, and so it's, it creates this narrative that the folks who are talking on Twitter, who have the loudest voices, are representing the Democratic Party, when I just don't think that's true when it comes to the voters. And that's one of the things I really wanted to dive in, because I think you've been great about showing the data behind the what you call the funhouse mirror effect in the Democratic Party of social media. How much of that, though, is trending? Like, like are those folks essentially creating a reality as as we saw with Trump on the and his followers on the right or is and or is it shifting demographically as more people who grew up with Twitter age into that or is or is, or is essentially those lines holding for the foreseeable future I mean unfortunately I think they are holding for the foreseeable future and you know politicians of both parties respond to incentives and I think Twitter has created some pretty crazy incentives that are not helpful to getting things done in Washington or to representing that vast kind of gray of the country that doesn't see things quite as simply as the base of either party. Um, because if you are a politician who says something that is, you know, super far to the left or super far to the right, you're rewarded instantly on Twitter. You're getting retweets and likes and your uh, tweet is getting covered on CNN and in the New York Times. And if you say something that is, you know, more representative of most American people, it doesn't get that uptake. And in fact, it can get a huge amount of backlash. So for example, I'll use myself, you know, I don't believe that um, Joe Biden using his executive authority to cancel $1.6 trillion in student loan debt is a good idea policy-wise for a number of reasons. And I tweeted the policy argument around that. And suddenly I had to turn off my Twitter because 
I was inundated with such vitriol and um, horrible images and horrible words and misogyny and all this crazy stuff. So, and I can take it. That's fine. When you work at a place called Third Way, you get used to people having an opinion about what you say, but a politician doesn't want to have to deal with that. And so I think it really muzzles folks who might have a different opinion than the folks on Twitter, and it continues to elevate the most extreme. So is there a way out in our policy approaches or discussions from where we all feel trapped, right? And I'll say as a politician, the worst part is that people, you know, other people, you can block people who are trolling you or, or abusing you. But if you're an elected official, you have to you have to leave that up and accept that for all time. And so there's even more disincentives to sort of engage. What's the way out of this? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think some of it is electoral reforms, right? So for example, the caucus system, which more states had used to select their nominees for their parties and fewer are now. I think that's because, uh, at least in the Democratic Party, they realized that people who were willing to go and sit at a caucus for eight hours were not representative of primary voters, and they certainly weren't representative of what would be supported by a general electorate. And so I think getting rid of things like caucuses, making sure that primaries are open, so the about 40% of people who call themselves independents can actually participate in choosing the nominee rather than just showing up and um, picking the lesser of two evils when it comes to the general election. Those kinds of things are really important to change the incentives. But then I also think we just need elected officials to realize that there's a difference between the people that might show up at your town hall and the people who make up your governing coalition. And the more that we can make sure that elected officials at the state and local level, in in Congress, and even in the White House, are really clear that that is not a reflection of America, um, that it is a funhouse mirror, I think that also helps. It doesn't mean you're not going to get yelled at at your town hall, which you certainly may, but it might give you a thicker skin if you realize that those folks that are yelling at you are not representative of all of your constituents. I mean, I think uh, we're we're in the midst, uh, as we record this, we're in the midst of a sort of an inter-party debate about the infrastructure bill and a second uh, human infrastructure bill. One of the things is, you know, what elected officials realizing who their constituents are or aren't. The other thing is recognizing who other constituents uh, uh, are for their colleagues. How how can the Democratic Party, who often is less disciplined and strategic, make sure that our umbrella is big enough to to have people who have constituents who are who are not like our own? I think that is really the the big question for the party. And and here's why. You know, people often like to act like the two parties are symmetrical and their coalitions are symmetrical, um, that there is a base on the right and a base on the left, and it's essentially doing the same thing. Now, it's not doing the same thing for a variety of reasons right now in that the base on the right is denying that democracy happened and trying to attack the Capitol. So we'll put that aside because, uh, you know, folks on the left are just having a, a policy debate with folks in the middle in the Democratic Party. So that's an important difference. But the other difference is that the base on the left is smaller and more diverse. 
And so when you look at people who make up the Republican coalition, 80% of them are self-described conservatives. When you look up people who vote for Democrats, only between 40 and 50% of them call themselves liberal. The rest, the majority, call themselves either moderate or conservative. And so we just have a harder job. We have a broader ideological coalition that we have to build. And Republicans can win elections by just getting their base excited. And we just simply can't because of the numbers. So I think, you know, we do need a big tent, as you've said. And I think we need, again, to have some humility, right? Because folks who are coming from a district that is D plus 80, right, which like votes 80 points more Democratic than the national (laughs) election, they may have a different experience than those who are in those frontline swing districts that make up Nancy Pelosi's majority or in the same is true at the state and local level, right? The people that are representing a super core urban area may not quite understand what a state legislator in Northern Minnesota, where I'm from, is dealing with. And so I think we need to allow, especially if we're trying to win elections, we need to allow the folks who are winning in the places that give us the majority to have a bigger role in and a voice in the party's image and in the party's decision-making. You know, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wasn't running in her district, it would still be Democratic. There's no choice there. <laughs> like a paper bag with a D by its name could win that district. So it, she absolutely is entitled to represent her constituents as she should in a democracy, but she does not understand necessarily what Connor Lamb or Abigail Spamberger are dealing with the the folks that are winning these swing districts in the House or what a governor of a purple state might be dealing with or what, you know, some of the state legislators who are trying to win in Texas are dealing with. And I think that just recognizing your role in the coalition is really important and not trying to tell folks who have a harder electoral job that they're not being pure enough to the values that, you know, the far left has decided to engage with. So I have two follow-up questions. One was when I got elected to the Board of Supervisors and it's five districts in a relatively small county, at least geographically, I went around and I spent the day with each one of my colleagues driving around their districts and meeting people. And it, you know, it was amazing. This is a community I grew up in. I thought I knew the county pretty well, but as I drove around, I got to see a different perspective. And now my colleagues take a position. It's a little more clear to me why they're doing it and how they're doing it. And I feel like that would be an enormous benefit, but there's at the national level, there's a political liability to Connor Lamb and AOC, uh, you know, driving around a district together. And so I wonder how they, how we sort of find the opportunities for people to to, to get out of whatever bubble they're in, you know, and it's good, be good for Connor Lamb to go to New York with AOC as well and connect without, without it turning into a political liability for both sides. Yeah, I think that's such a great point and such a great practice to have. You know, I know that 
Um, Chuck Grassley in Iowa, Republican longtime senator, um, used to go to every one of the 99 ca- counties in Iowa. And so now they call that the full Grassley. <laughs> when you go to every one of the 99 counties in Iowa, Chuck Schumer would go to every county in New York. And I think it's super important. And it happens more with statewide candidates, I think, than and statewide electeds and less so when you represent a smaller area. But what you did is so important because there there are so many, even if you represent, you know, a, a smaller district, there is certainly great diversity within that district and understanding not just who is it that you hang out with that, you know, makes up your social circle, who might be one component of that constituency, but who else lives there and what are their needs? That's super important. And I remember talking to Gretchen Whitmer's campaign manager, governor of Michigan. She made her her campaign all about fix the damn roads, right? And everybody in Michigan thought that was a great idea. So she went to every single county in Michigan before she ran. And Michigan is big and Upper Peninsula is far away. And Democrats win almost no votes there. So I asked why that was true. Why did she spend her time doing that? And her campaign manager said, it's not necessarily about we think we're going to win the Upper Peninsula. It's that we're showing that we care about all of the voters in this state. We care about all of the Michiganders, not just the ones who are in Democratic areas. And that sends a message to people. So I think that's super important. And we should be um, pushing folks at the federal level to really do that as well, because their social circles, the people they hang out with, the people they see on social media are just not representative of all of the people they're supposed to be representing. So let me ask you the flip side of this, which is the the far left or the very progressive will say, well, unless you speak to my issues, you're not going to energize me to, to turn out or to be a Democrat or to. Other. So, you know, if you're going to engage with uh, sort of Upper Peninsula folks, how also are you engaging with uh, urban young progressive core, especially as we look at heading into 2022? How do you. How does how do how does Joe Biden excite those folks? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, certainly a trope that uh, folks bring out on the far left to try to overlook the fact that they haven't actually won very many elections, especially in places that are swing districts and majority makers. You know, I'll give you the example of you know of the 2018 blue wave. The 2018 blue wave was driven by moderate Democrats. So the our revolution folks, the Justice Democrats, the Bernie-endorsed candidates did not flip even one House district from red to blue in 2018. Not one. The New Dems flipped 32. The moderate caucus flipped 32. They're the ones that gave Nancy Pelosi the gavel. And I think, you know, so we've seen over and over again that these moderate candidates can and do excite the people in their district. Um, And, you know, Joe Biden is another great example. This was the highest turnout election in modern history. (laughs) And it had a very self-described moderate candidate, at least on one side of the ballot. So I do think we need to be cognizant going into 2022 that we need to turn out Democrats because sometimes Democrats forget that there are midterm elections. But I don't think the way that we do that is by going farther left. And how do you how do you think 2022 is is looking both in terms of the elections and also in obviously the reapportionment and redistricting that's occurring before those elections? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll start with redistricting. The census numbers just came out this week, and and we know that Republicans are just positioned to control more redistricting processes than Democrats are. And so Democrats may be able to pick up a couple of seats in states like Illinois or New York, but Republicans have a lot more to gain in a lot more places. And because of that, the experts have said that Republicans are likely to gain between five and upwards of 12 seats, net seats, in in the redistricting process alone. So that means that Democrats are looking to win back the House majority in 2022, not defend it. We can't just think about, oh, we have to defend the majority because we're actually starting behind. So we really need to be thinking about that and, and moving towards, like you said, kind of the broad tent coalition that can bring that along. Now, the good news is that Joe Biden is really trusted on the economy. His approval numbers are really high. And those are usually very big indicators of how the midterms are going to go. And we know that often presidents lose a lot of their party members in the midterms. But I think right now we're on track to be okay with that, other than the redistricting problem. But the thing is that Democrats writ large are less trusted on the economy than Joe Biden. So we just did a poll and showed that Democrats are trusted 12 points less than Republicans on the economy. And they were they were tied on the generic ballot, like, do you want to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? So that is something we really need to get ahead of. And we've said that the way to do that is to run as a Biden Democrat. You know, if Biden has an advantage on the economy, it's and, and it's actually 31 points higher with persuadable voters, 21 points higher on the economy with Latinos and 24 points with black voters, then Democrats need to hug Joe Biden hard and show that we are Biden Democrats who are running to deliver on Biden's agenda, because that really does break through with these persuadable and swing voters. So going back to our original question, where there's recognizing the complexity in people's views on on policy and politicians, what is it? Is it policy that causes that difference between Joe Biden and the rest of Democrats? Is it perception? Is it a relationship? Like what's what's driving the difference there? Yeah, I think it's a, a couple different things. I mean, certainly it's about emphasis and what you talk about, right? So, for example, and you know, you could also call this messaging, but you know, Biden rolled out the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. He didn't roll out the climate change and clean energy plan, right? He really focused on how are these big bills going to really advance our economy and advance the the livelihoods of voters around the country. And that, I think, makes them wildly more popular than just talking about the climate change pieces of the bill, which are hugely important policy-wise. So that's certainly a piece of it. But we just did another poll where we looked at even how you frame those specific policies. So for example, the child tax credit. Child tax credit is super popular. But if you talk about it solely in terms of raising children out of poverty, which it did and and is, and that's a hugely important policy goal, fewer people think it applies to them. But if you talk about it as a middle-class tax cut, which it also is, and doing so doesn't make the children not come out of poverty, they're still coming out of poverty, 
way more people think it applies to them. And that means that they're going to start listening to you and think that you're really looking out for their interests. So I do think this White House is doing a good job of that. And I hope that Democrats from down ballot from Congress down to, you know, school board can think about how they frame these policies that are separately popular on a poll to build a picture that our party is actually concerned about them. And how much of this is reliant? There's there's obviously big parts of the economy that we can't control as the de- Delta variant spreads and there's global potential global impacts. But how much of this are of the Democrats' success in 2022 will be reliant on Congress continuing to move these packages through? Because I'm not, it's not clear that 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 will continue to happen. So how much of it is proposals versus enacted policy? You know, I think the folks who won in 2018 in the blue wave and then had to defend their records in 2020, not having much uh, that they had actually enacted into law because of Trump and a Republican Senate um, would tell you that you, you don't get much credit for a proposal. You get credit for what actually gets done. You know, I mean, the House, the Democratic House in 2018 or 2019 and 2020 passed all kinds of awesome stuff that people would have loved, but none of it came to fruition. And I don't think most voters are, you know, looking at the ticker to see, like, what did the House pass that's now sitting on the Senate's agenda that could have been awesome for me, except for that it didn't get passed. Like, that's not how people, most people think about politics. So, um, so I do think getting something done is huge. And I know you all talk a lot about trust in government and the fact that it has eroded so much. And um, that's a, a huge problem in our country. If we can get a huge huge, historically huge infrastructure bill passed that is bipartisan, got 69 votes in the Senate. When's the last time anything got 69 votes in the Senate? Even naming a post office probably doesn't get 69 votes in the Senate in, the, in current years. I think that that'll do a lot to show people that Congress is actually working because we've heard so much that it's broken, it's broken, it's broken, it's broken. Well, it's not broken if we pass this giant infrastructure bill that has so many pieces that, uh, you know, will help so many people across the country. And then even more so, obviously, if we can get another reconciliation bill passed. And we saw that with, you know, with the COVID package, the American Rescue Plan had real impacts for people. So I think most people's expectation at this point is that Congress will do exactly nothing. And so if we can get past a few big bills, we don't have to fix every problem, but it really proves that Joe Biden's approach and his theory of change can work, that he can, in fact, get Mitch McConnell to vote for something that he proposed. And I think that that'll really go well with folks. How how do you think about the Senate? Obviously, it's structurally a challenge for the Democratic Party currently and going forward. Do you think this infrastructure bill is a sign of 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 a of a potential opportunities there, or is is it sort of a one off in a crisis? You know, I sure hope it is potential for opportunities. And I do know, you know, I've been in D.C. since 2006, so about 15 years at this point. And and as I said, I think politicians rightly operate on incentives. And I think when you actually pass something, it creates a virtuous cycle because 
I suspect that these Republicans who vote for a big infrastructure bill will then be able to go out and campaign on the fact that they delivered that and uh, will be getting a lot of really good feedback from projects that are getting done in their districts from things that are happening based on that policy they supported. So hopefully that will make them more likely to come back to the table on other issues and, and think, hey, if I actually do things, if I actually get things done, that might be politically better for me than just saying no to everything. That's my hope. But, you know, the, the structural challenges are real. Like right now we have a 50-50 divided Senate. And I think the numbers are, so the 50 senators who are Republicans represent 40 million less people than the 50 senators who are Democrats. That's crazy that we would have that big of a difference. And, and it's continuing to get worse and worse in terms of our structural disadvantages as uh, Democrats continue to move into the cities, not play in the rural areas, you know, win those inner suburbs. So we definitely need to figure out how to make sure that our tent is big enough for people that live beyond big cities and, you know, the suburbs directly around them, if we're going to be able to, you know, maintain a majority in the Senate and and even hold the House moving forward. And now this brings me to the to the thing I'm most excited to talk to you about, because as far as I can tell, you're the only person in Washington, D.C., who pays attention to small cities. So I, I was a mayor of a city of 65,000 and now county of 300,000. And, you know, all uh, the national conversation tends to revolve around either very rural policy or very urban policy. And nobody seems to remember that a plurality of Americans live in, live in cities like I'm, like I represent. Can you talk a little bit about your work in that area and why we all should be paying attention to small cities? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just starting on the more political front, small cities are the way that we're going to stay in majorities. You know, we cannot win majorities either at the federal level or at the state and local level if we aren't robustly represented in these economic power centers of different regions. Like we can't win just with New York, San Francisco, Boston, and maybe Atlanta. We need to have, you know, a broader set of bases, even within these swing states and districts. And, and that's hugely important. And then, you know, on the policy front, what we're seeing more and more is that these smaller cities are the engine of economic opportunity for all the people around them. You know, I grew up in a rural area in northern Minnesota, and uh, it used to be that most people worked in the lumber industry or farming, but that's not true anymore. Now, they, a lot of folks work in tourism or at the university. In my small city of Bemidji, Minnesota, of, uh, you know, now has grown to about 30,000 people. So that is the economic hub of the entirety of northern Minnesota until you get as far out as Duluth and Fargo. And if we're not thinking about supporting not just Minneapolis or Minneapolis and Duluth, but Bemidji, Minnesota, uh, we're both leaving electoral advantages on the table and we're leaving, as you said, a huge amount of Americans behind because that is where the bulk of people are trying to earn a living, are trying to create economic opportunity for themselves and, you know, one, one final thought on that, people worry that young people are going to move away from those places. 
And we need young people to be educated and stay in those places and make them thrive. So that really needs to be a focus of democratic policy and democratic politics moving forward if we are going to make sure that the entire country is a place where you can earn a good life. And can you talk a little bit about what you see the voters in those places wanting? Obviously, one of those things could be that their children be able to stay and make a living and a life uh, in the community uh, where their where their parents live or their families live. Can you talk? Can you talk about what else they want? Absolutely. I think that that you hit the nail on the head. You know, we we did after the shocking result in the 2016 election, we went and did um, listening tours across the country in about two dozen places. And a lot of them were these kind of smaller cities or even suburbs of these smaller cities. You know, whenever we talk about suburbs, people in D.C. think about Alexandria, but like Alexandria is not necessarily representative Uh, representative of the suburbs of Cincinnati or, you know, of Sacramento or even of Bemidji, Minnesota. So I think we need to broaden that a little bit. But, you know, what we heard in all of those places, no matter what state we were in, was that people want an opportunity to earn a good life. There's such a focus on hard work. And really, you know, this, there's a Pew survey that I love to talk about that surveys people from countries across the globe and says, uh, on a scale of zero to 10, how important do you think uh, hard work is to getting ahead? And, you know, in a country like France, about 40% of people say that it's a nine or a 10 on that 10 point scale. In the United States, 90% of people (laughs) say that it's a nine or a 10 on that scale. People from every walk of life think that, you know, if you work hard, you should be able to get ahead. And in our most recent poll, though, we saw that when you ask folks which party represents people who work hard, they say Republicans. So we really need to be thinking about integrating not just the idea that we're going to take care of everyone, which of course we want to do, and that's baked into the Democratic brand, but that we want to make the Democratic Party one that's focused on helping people earn a good life, helping people have an opportunity to make a a life for themselves of their choosing, no matter where they are from coast to coast. Not just if they're, you know, within 15 miles of the Acela train, but no matter where they want to live and, and ensure that they don't feel that their children have to go to a different place in order to earn that good life. Um, you know, because I think that's, that's kind of what we all want to see, um, that you can, you can earn it where you are and you don't have to see an exodus of all the young people from your city to somewhere else in order to live the life that they want. So if we really focus on earning a good life, the opportunity to earn a good life every single place in this country, no matter where you live, I think that would be a great start. And if we want to to translate the concerns and the importance of these small cities into Washington politics, you sort of, as a representative of these places, I always feel like like we're always never at the table. The big city mayors are at the table as they should be. Uh, Rural interests are at the table through the Senate, as you talked about sort of structurally. Somehow all these smaller cities sort of who, who need a different approach than will work in the rural areas or in the, in the big urban areas. 
are are sort of never top of mind uh, for policymakers. Do you have a sense as to how to change that? How to how to engage so that we start creating the very targeted and probably flexible programs we need if communities, because what's going to work in northern Minnesota may not work in Orange County, California, for a small city to 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 retain its workforce or to allow people to work hard and find opportunity. How do we adjust federal policy to 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 deal with these very disparate and different places? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point, and that is where the importance of state and local leadership comes in, and having federal policymakers who listen to the state and local electeds about what's needed on the ground. And, you know, I'm reminded I served on President Obama's Commission on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And one of the things that was so important that he did was designate certain places, opportunity zones, that could then get extra points on a whole bunch of different grants at the federal government and had a kind of liaison that would help them figure out how to, this is a very DC term, blend and braid different funding, right? So we've got all of these different grants and programs and departments. And if you're the mayor of a mid-sized city, you don't have a bunch of staff to work on all of those competitive grants. You know, you're you're kind of trying to balance your budget day to day. So having folks in the federal government really understand what it's like and take a regional based approach to getting all of the resources there, not just from the Department of Education or from Health and Human Services or from the Ag Department, but thinking about how those can work together to revitalize a community or to just, you know, um, put it on the right economic track. I think that's pretty game changing. And we should be thinking about that more rather than, you know, focusing only on the kind of national implications and then seeing Democrats as the folks that are representing big cities and Republicans representing rural areas and then nobody's talking about all the folks in between. Keep at it. Shake them all in uh, D.C. Uh, until they listen uh, or keep hitting them with the good data that, that you provide because it's uh, I think that's the biggest opportunity if we can if we can tap into it and it provides the our elected, you know, the the broad coalition under the Democratic umbrella, an opportunity to find some common ground if we can if we can get down to that level. Absolutely, and I'll just say, final point. You know, boy, the best way to bolster the Democratic brand is for fantastic local electeds who represent their region, their area, and understand it the way that you do, and the way that so many of the New Deal leaders do to be. Democrats and be the face of the party. So I couldn't appreciate y'all more. And thanks for having me on today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your work because it informs, it informs so much of our work and, and it's a good way to, uh, to gain some attention for on needed issues. And so thank you for joining us today. And I can't wait for the next poll survey opinion piece uh, that you have coming out. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.